Well, good morning. It really is a pleasure to be here. I, I put a thing up on Facebook uh, yesterday with a picture of my dog, which my wife had sent me. Looking, It was like a, a million-dollar picture. It was just the sun was in the right place, etc. But then I just mentioned that I'm at my favourite church in Sydney, which this one is. I love coming here, so thank you for having me um, again. And... Uh, and enough of the personal stuff now. Let's get. Let's look at this passage, Luke 16, 1 to 15. I'll pray in a minute. But um, there's a story which is probably based at Macquarie Uni. The vice chancellor was having a meeting with all the deans of the various faculties, all the great minds. And um, a genie turns up at the meeting, as they so often do, and um, says to the vice chancellor, so you have been such a magnificent student of generations, a servant of many generations of students. Your love of knowledge has led you to stay here when you could have taken more expensive jobs, and better paid jobs elsewhere. So I've been sent to give you three, uh, not three, one wish will do you, one wish. But the wish has got a structure. You can either have unlimited money, unlimited winsome and insight, or unlimited appeal to women. Everyone's watching this great learned scholar. What will he choose? He says, wisdom. I'd like to have true, true wisdom and insight. And poof, the genie disappears. The man looks a bit different. And all the other great academics, well, what, what, what do you know now that, now that you've got all knowledge and all wisdom and all insight? He said, what I know is I should have chosen the money. And uh, money is, of course, a subject that we're all fascinated with. Uh, many of you will know that over half of the parables of Jesus involve money or are taught in, in terms of money. Jesus talks more about Jesus, talks more about money than he does about prayer. That's interesting, isn't it? More about money than he does about heaven or hell. And the reason he talks about money is not so that false prophets and false ministers can rip their people off, although we know sadly that is what happens sometimes. He talks about money not because he's obsessed with money, but because he knows that you are and where I am. With all the stuff that money can get us, like security and freedom and options. And really, if you, if you look at what you do with money, that is the perfect guide to what your heart is on about. Uh, we don't like to think that, but I think that's what Jesus says. Now, my dearest friend, who I've known since I was four, Tom, and I'm going to see him. I've got to go to this conference. Well, we've chosen to go to this conference for four days up at Terrigal. Aaron and the whole staff team are going up, and we've rented a place. We ne we've never done this before to learn about reaching Australia. And, um, but I'm nicking off one night to go and catch up with Tom, my my dearest friend. In fact, Alison, when I was, had fallen in love with my wife, and she was saying, I'm not the great love story in your life, am I? She, I said, he said, Thomas is the great love story in your life. And yes, I, I do love my mate Tom. Um, but he spent 17 years addicted to heroin. Uh, and there was a whole period when I was just praying that he wouldn't die, because I, I, I remember meeting him once in Edgecliff Station. Um, and I don't, I remember the conversation, but I forgot part of the conversation. But I was just praying that God wouldn't let him die because he was in no fit state to die. His life was a mess, but he'd be worse after death, according to Jesus. And his, his just skin looked grey and terrible, and he's a lovely guy. And apparently I told him the story of the Good Samaritan. Not the Good Samaritan, I'm getting all muddled. The, the waiting, running, loving father. I told him that story sitting at Edgecliff Station. He said to me, after God saved him, some years later, 
He said, I never forgot that story. I always knew that God would have me back if I would just come back. And that he had a, an absolute miracle at one stage that, that really did bring him back, but it seems to be an out-and-out miracle that happened to him. But um, when Tom became a Christian, he'd sometimes ring me up to get you know, little questions he had about the Bible that he'd begun to read. And he asked me about the question about the parable that we had read today. He said, what's with that story? How can Jesus take a, a clearly dishonest, wicked, self-centred man and say, be like him? And uh, I, I suggested, well, it's not quite that simple, but it's fairly simple. Jesus is a very risky communicator. So he'll use an evil judge as an example of uh, some, some secrets in prayer as a parallel to God. It, it's weird what Jesus does. He does things that if someone did it here in a kid's talk, you'd say, don't ever do that again. What were you thinking? But Jesus does it because he desperately wants to wake us up. Takes a large bell to wake the dead. And so he's saying something to us which is quite risky but very important by using this wicked steward as an example of the sort of person we could be. Now, Daryl Bock, as some of you may know, he's a very fine Christian scholar, has written some great stuff on Luke's gospel. He says this is the hardest parable to understand. I disagree, uh, which is a bit like someone in a you know, little tinny having a go at the Bismarck, really. Uh, it's foolishness, but I want to suggest to you it's not all that hard to understand, I don't think. It just says stuff that feels a bit yucky to us. Um, that's, that's my contention. But it is a parable for which you could very easily be eternally grateful for if we not only hear it but hear it. Right? And there's few areas where congregations get resistant to the teaching more obviously than when it comes to money. Right? Because we always have this feeling that ministers and churches are trying to get the money that needs to be in my bank account into their bank account. And so we have a, you, can feel, you can feel congregations at times urging you, yeah, tell me more about this. And other times you can feel a congregation, I'm not sure, let's, let's move on to something else, shall we? But as disciples of Jesus, people who honour him and see him as wise and the one who is the light of the world, let's pray that we would hear, that I'd speak clearly, that I wouldn't mislead you, and that we would be set free by the truth. Lord Jesus... Thank you for your presence here with us. Thank you for this church, for those who originally started it, for those who've kept it going in difficult times, as I'm sure it's had. Uh, thank you for the leadership team at the moment here. And we ask for this little gathering here. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to hear your voice, that you would work in spite of me and around me and even through me. But most of all, Lord Jesus, you would send your Holy Spirit to each one of us, that we would hear your word with joy. We pray this in your name. Amen. Right. Luke 16. Jesus told his disciples. So this is one aimed at us, not just the crowd. It's those who are followers. There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So this idea of the manager, uh, it, it, if you heard the original Greek word, it's where our word economics comes from. It's the one who looked after the household. And uh, the great John Wesley um, suggests that the idea of being a steward is perhaps the most helpful or one of the most helpful ways to understand the nature of Christian living. It's a big claim because the, word, the Bible doesn't often use this picture of the steward. It uses other pictures more often, like being a child or being a disciple. But I think he's right. It does percolate its way through the Old Testament into the New Testament, into the teaching of Jesus, into the teaching of the apostles. 
being a steward. I wonder if you see yourself as a steward. Yes, a sinner. Yes, a person made by God. Yes, adopted, forgiven. But a steward. Because that is the sort of teaching Jesus gives us again and again. In Luke 12 is perhaps some of the clearest teaching. But here in Luke 16, just picks up this picture. And there's, there's, a, there's two people in the story, two key people. There's the owner, the rich man, and there's his steward. And um, he, the, guy, the owner hears that his steward, who's supposed to look after his stuff and set him free to relax since he's so wealthy and invest his stuff and feed the staff, etc., is wasting his money. He's bringing prodigal with it. He's, he's, uh, he hears it. He does a bit of an investigation. He says, what is this I hear? Uh, give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. So it's clear, it's clear you know, to use the old a show that I, I think I may have watched twice, the old Trump thing, you're fired. So he gets told he's fired and he does something which is weird. It's only a story. You've got to keep remembering this is just a story, but it's not just a story. But it doesn't mean it's based on a true story. This really happened once in Galilee somewhere. Right? It's just a story, but it's much more than just a story. But you'd never do this. Uh, and you'll see people who get sacked if you've worked in a company. They often get sacked and they're out the door immediately. And sometimes security will escort them out because you can do a lot of harm if you're in a company that has just sacked you if you're left there with access to the computer. So you'll be escorted. That's pretty, sometimes un, brutally unfair and often humiliating. But in this story, he's left. He's given some time. He said, OK, you know, bring me an account and write me how much we owe and who, who owes what to us and bring me an account and then you'll be off. And he's got this window where he knows his employment is finished but he's still technically working uh, in, in the place. The manager said to himself, and you know those little, you know, they call emojis, those little faces you can put on messages? I kind of like the one I've been using a few times. I normally put a clown because that's an appropriate face after I've sent something to someone. Is there's a little sort of yellow face that's Going like this, think thoughtful. And this is this guy's being thoughtful. He's thinking. The man had said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. He probably is, but he's just lazy. Anyone can learn to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. He's proud. I know what I'll do. He has a ma- Oh, I've worked out what I'll do. So that when I lose my job here... People will welcome me into their houses. So you see what the situation is? He's, he's had a life that was secure, where he lived quite well, serving the master but misusing things, and being looked after by the master. But it's all coming to an end. And he doesn't know what he's going to do. How's he going to keep living? So he has a very clever plan. And you heard it. It was wonderfully acted out for us in the kids' talk. He just basically said to people who owed his master money, he cut their debt. Right? doesn't matter the details. We can, you can waste time reading about it in commentaries, but that's not, the significance is not in the details of that. The significance is elsewhere. But you can see what he's doing. He's, he's ingratiating himself to people. Now, of course, you know, if, if they're sensible, they're not going to employ him because the one thing they know about him is that he's, a, he's dishonest, right? even if they've benefited from it. But the story is that they, they will say, oh, OK, thank you. And maybe it was the way that it was suggested that he'll just be able to couch surf his way and have a little bit of kindness from all of these friends that he's earned by his generous... um, He would have ingratiated himself to them. The master knows about this too. He hears about it. Verse 8. This is where we we need to be paying attention. The master commented, commended the dishonest manager. This is what people get... How how can the master say, well done? Um, 
And we tend to think the master's probably a bit like God or Jesus. So we think it's... The master commended the manager because he acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their kind than the people of the, of the light. Now, I want to suggest to you the parable, the story of Jesus finishes after the word shrewdly. And what happens after that is Jesus commenting on, on what's in the story. Because that, what happens when he starts to talk about the people of this world as against the children of light is clearly not part of the story, but it, it's his reflection on the story that he's told. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Now, what do you think the word shrewdly means? Can you think of a, of a synonym of another word that we might use or a little phrase of someone where you might say, that was shrewd. What does it mean to be shrewd? That's a genuine question. That's not a rhetorical question. I, 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 when I was trying to work out how to preach, which I'm still doing, um, uh, I learned that if to ask questions in a sermon is good, even if you don't ask, because people answer it in their head, even if they don't want to, if you ask a question. But I discovered when I went to shore, when you had the prep school kids, third class, you ask a rhetorical question. No, no, it's a rhetorical question, kids. And, but you can't do that. But that's, what are you, you got any suggestions? What's another? It might be quite obvious. Another word that you could use rather than shrewd. Clever. Yes. Cunning. Yes. All right. Cunning. Shrewd. Clever. Any other words or pictures? Conniving, where you're really planning and plotting. They've all got a slightly negative flavour, don't they? But they, they're not in, there's nothing wrong with being cunning. You know, I, I remember watching the architects when, when we burnt the church down at, at Broadway. Um, so no more in, in, inside barbecues, we decided. But um, um, I just wish I'd parked my Ferrari. In fact, I was going to think I said to the insurance, I had my Ferrari parked in there so I could get a new one because people got new guitars, all sorts of things, um, insurance. But um, it was interesting watching the architect because I went to bore you with the details. We had a stairway that needed to... And it wasn't working properly. And I was told, a good architect, they're problem solvers. They're good listeners, and these guys were. They, but they good, And it was interesting watching them finally solve this insoluble problem to how to get the stairway from the, from the ground floor up and finish up on the stage, because it shouldn't. They wanted it to finish up, but they came out into the general worship space. No, 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 it's got to come up on the stage. They worked in it for ages. They were cunning. They had to do some cunning things. They were shrewd in a really good way. Now, what Jesus is saying is this man was shrewd. Uh, he worked out, he, he had a problem, something that was unavoidable, that was going to ruin everything, right? and he was in trouble. And he had a brief moment to work out, what can I do here that will secure there? And he, he thought about it. He got a pen and paper. He brainstormed with himself, and perhaps if he had a friend, we don't hear of any friends, but if he had a friend, he may have done that. Uh, can I suggest we've heard, I'm sorry to use Mr. Trump twice, um, but, you know, various parts of the media, you know, the media say something out there that some of them hate him, and it doesn't matter what he does or says, he's being wicked, and others love him, and no matter what he does or said, he's wonderful. Um, of course, we're all balanced, unlike those people. But... Um, but I remember he, he had made a comment, and I ended up going back and watching the interview because I'm not interested in following American politics too closely because I've got nothing to do with it, uh, fascinating as it is. But, but he had made a comment about Putin when he chose to attack Ukraine, and he said, he's a genius. So 
you know, various parts of the movie. Oh, what? See, what he, he thinks Putin's a good guy. No, 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 no. He's just saying it was a very clever, perfectly timed moment in history and the concerns that people had with things, with COVID and other distractions that were going on for him to do what he's probably been planning on doing for some time. Right? And, and that's what, that's what he, I think he's, Jesus is saying. This is a very cunning, thoughtful, you know, intelligent use of the moment to secure his future. I've watched a man who's kind of a friend, but he was doing something that I didn't like, what he was doing in a meeting, where I saw him work, prepare the room. Uh, and in the end, the decisions the room made were wrong. And it was funny because the room was full of lawyers, you know, and I use lawyers not negatively, accountants, all sorts of very clever professionals, and one dairy farmer. And the only one who sniffed the manure in the room was the dairy farmer. All the rest of us went, yeah, that's a good idea. And he abstained. And just because he said, oh, there's something, something weird about it. And it was in the end. We employed a, a con person uh, for a few weeks. But I watched this guy preparing for us to make the big decision. Uh, and he said, oh, and I know I, well, thanks for those previous votes. But now I've come to something I'm a bit confused. I thought, you are not confused at all. You know exactly what you want the room to do. But I remember thinking, you are a cunning fox. And um, I didn't know it was right or wrong in the end. The decision that we made on his advice was wrong. But this is what Jesus is talking about. Someone who just simply works out, where am I trying to get? How am I going to get there? Right? That's what Jesus is commending. He's not commending the dishonesty. And, and you'll notice with, with a lot of the parables of Jesus, there's really one point he's making. And he'll tell you what the point is. And the point he tells you is, is, comes in the explanation afterwards. He wants his children, his people, his disciples like you and me, right, to be shrewd, to realise where we live and to make decisions that we will actually look back and say, John, I'm glad I made that decision. Right? Um, and God himself and others will say it. So let me read you verse 8 and 9 again. This is where Jesus starts to apply it. Verse 8. This is the, in the parable. The master commended the dishonesty. He says, you are a cunning fox, aren't you? You diddled me, you done me, but I can't help but admire. You've acted shrewdly. Jesus, out of the parable. For the people of this world, that is people who aren't Christians, are more shrewd in dealing with their own stuff or kind than are the people of light. So he's contrasting his people, the followers of the light, with the world generally. And he says, the world are more cunning, they're shrewder, they work better with their stuff than my people do. I tell you, this is the application, this is weird, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Right? Now, I think the words are fairly clear. It's just a little creepy, I think, to us that what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I want my people to be shrewd. And you see this really in Mark's gospel, where the enemies of Jesus are really shrewd and his disciples are really stupid all the way through, that we just don't get it. Right? And so when, when uh, the lady who was married to King Herod, who hated John the Baptist because he would preach against the marriage, um, she finally gets a, a, a moment to have John the Baptist killed, and she takes it. And she tells her daughter, 
But you should ask for, he's offered you anything in the kingdom, we want his head. So quick as a flash, the people of darkness had John the Baptist dead. Same with Jesus. They got him, right? Shrewdly. And the, and the, the people are going, you know, all the disciples, what, 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 what's happening? And Jesus said, the people of the world, they know what they're on about, they know what the game is, they know what they're trying to get and they go for it. He said, my people, the people of light are often not that shrewd. And then here's the application. I tell you, this is what Jesus is saying to you and me as disciples, use your worldly wealth, right, which is everything you have. It's not just the spare money in your account. It is your home. It is your superannuation, if you have any. It is your investment property. All that stuff and your money and your assets like your time and your abilities, your capacities, use your wealth, the stuff, it's mostly money he's talking about, to gain friends for yourself. That looks a bit creepy. There's a guy at my school who was a nice guy, but when it came up to prefect election time, where the, the students had lots of votes and the staff had some votes. And I discovered after I left school that I was blackballed by the staff. Not that I was likely to get many votes anyhow. But this guy was hanging around the canteen for about a month before the election, just giving money to people as they lined up. They were, like, they were going to get a powder pop so they could get 10 powder pops. And it worked, you know. It was kind of weird because he was a really popular guy anyhow, but I think he might have read this parable. Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself. What sort of friends? Use your worldly wealth in a way that when it's gone, right, when you no longer have access to your wealth, which is like one second after you die, right? at that point, Kerry Packer will leave behind as much as I leave behind. Everything. Right? So he falls out, doesn't matter what he had. You can't enjoy the fine mahogany of your casket. doesn't make any difference to the person who's in it. Use your money so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. That's... Use your money so that you'll get a warm welcome into eternal dwellings. The house that we had, that um, Kate read to us this morning, that you know, Jesus, he's, he's the one, his father's house has got many rooms and we get there because he pays for us, gets us in. But he's got this picture of, you know, when you, when you enter eternal dwellings, that you'll get a warm welcome. Now, it would be stupid, but possible, but stupid and probably malignant if you said, ah, see, you buy your way into heaven. That's to, that's to make Jesus a fool because it's so clear that you don't, that he buys your place to heaven. But he is saying something here about the sort of welcome you might get. Use your money so that when it's gone, when you've left it behind, and you enter into the unmistakable experience of eternity, you'll get a warm welcome by the friends you've made with your money. What on earth is he talking about? I mentioned on Friday when Hans asked me, unprovoked and without much time, to with no time to think about it, and two of the people who've influenced me, I mentioned this great guy, Reg Hanlon. He'd been a missionary in what we used to... No, no, that's right. His mate um, had been in Tanganyika, which became Tanzania. He'd been in Kenya... Reg had gone with his wife and children uh, and he was reaching unreached tribes. There were tribes in Kenya, there were people in various parts of the world who had never heard the name of Jesus. And Reg took them the message of Jesus. The same way as some, some mad people took the message to the Anglo-Celts, you know, um, my ancestors. We slaughtered them by the truckload. 
right? But they kept on coming, and eventually the gospel pierced its way into the whitefellas culture where my ancestors came from, thank goodness. But Reg went across there. And here's what Reg, I remember him speaking on this, this passage decades before I ever dreamed of speaking from it. He said to the congregation in West Wollongong, you can put your money into the plate. You can put some money into the CMS side of the envelope. You know, some churches have got envelopes and you've got some for the parish and some for mission. Okay, so he said, you put your money in, in the part that says CMS. That goes in a CMS head office. They oversee the recruitment and the training of missionaries who go across to Africa, where he'd been in Kenya, he said, and they bring the gospel to people who'd never heard the name of Jesus. Saves them from the darkness of all those God and spirit stuff they dealt with. Gives them the gift of forgiveness so that when they die, they go to glory. And he said, he wouldn't say it like this now, but he said, so when you die, although you've never been out of West Wollongong, you will be met in heaven by shiny black faces, was the phrase he used, who will welcome you and say, thank you. Thank you so much for making it possible that the gospel could get to us. Because without the money, CMS can't send people across, even if they had 100 brilliant trainees. They can't get there without money. And we've got the money, haven't we? And I suggest to you, Reg Hanlon, I think, was right. He's saying, use your money, the huge wealth that we have, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. Some of us now are living in houses or apartments that are now worth a million dollars. Who'd have thought of it? It's ridiculous. We're sitting on a fortune. Jesus, use that stuff in that moment you've got in a way that into eternity people will say, they'll say, thank you. You're not going to get into heaven because of it. But you will, people will ignore, they will know in the knowledge that we'll have in heaven that you gave the money that made it possible. I mean, just think of it, whoever who paid for these bricks. And by the way, I've got no idea if you've got a building program going, so Hans has not asked me to do this to, you know, help pay for the... We've got a big building thing, we're going to do it at St Matt's Point, yes, sir? That's if we stay with the Anglicans, who knows what we're going to do. But um, sometimes you don't want to build buildings because they keep them in the end. But you're an independent church. You don't have that nonsense going on. But whatever is the need for money, it may be for buildings, it may be for people. You know, you put money into a kid's ministry, you put money into youth, whatever. You know, you you put money out of your account so the gospel gets heard, so people in the end do not go to hell, they go to glory. And you made it possible. Or you made it impossible. Because you kept your investment property that you don't need. Or you were too in love with your children to say to them, I know, I know you're waiting for me to die and then your brothers and sisters will carve up the house that is now worth an obscene amount of money and the holiday house at Terrigal or whatever else you've got. But I need to tell you, on thought and reflection, I think I should give most of that to the gospel. Now, that's going to be a tough conversation. You're going to need to work out where Jesus says, you've got to love me more than you love your mother, your father, your husband, your wife, your own children. Right? You do it for him, and you do it just to be shrewd. See, I don't think the parable's hard to understand. It's just a bit yucky. We don't want people talking to us honestly and sensibly about the wise use of our money. We want to be left to be fools, like the rich fool, like the apprentice fool, 
or the perfect fool that we saw in, on, on Friday night. But Jesus loves you. He wants you to be shrewd. So you'll get a warm welcome. I have no idea how it will impact your experience of eternity. When I, the first time I went to more college, I had this guy, uh, Broughton Knox was the principal. And he taught by this thing, like this Socratic way of teaching, where he would provoke the class to ask questions. And there's one clever class a couple of years ahead of me that thought they'd provoke him by not asking any questions. And apparently by the end of it, Knocker was making the most outrageously heretical comments, trying to break it. That's how he taught. And when they decided, no, we're not going to ask him. No matter what he says, no questions. And uh, that was frustrating for him. Um, but, you know, the, um, the, the thing with, with the, the shrewdness that we need is to take Jesus seriously and say, right, um, how can I make this money it's a bit like you've got money in Monopoly. You're playing Monopoly with your family. But somehow, rather, you can turn, turn the Monopoly money into real money. And you can, that may mean that you don't get to put the hotels on Mayfair or whatever, you know, the expensive one now. But, you know, but it's, if you can take the money out of this momentary game that you're playing and transfer it into real life, and that's what Jesus is saying here. Be shrewd. right? Be wise. He says it for your sake so you don't end up regretting your tragic, the moment when you could have made the difference. And the thing that I was going to say about Broughton Knox was that he, we, had a, we spent at least a whole hour with one class asking about the verses that talk about uh, sort of rewards, some sort of difference that faithfulness in ministry and life makes into eternity. And Knocker, in the end, just said, I, all we can say is how you live today will have some sort of impact on your experience of eternity. And I think that's, that much is clear, that it's a gift. We're all the same, right? We get to go to glory because of the blood of Jesus, but there are, there are some impacts from how you choose to live according to Jesus. You live in a crisis. I think one of the reasons why Christianity is unpopular at, at some level, even with Christians in some way, is that it, it says that life is fundamentally serious. Oh, it's full of joy and laughter. That's undoubtedly true. And I remember a Muslim couple who became Christians uh, at a church in Annandale that I was at, and they, they just, they, they hated Islam. They knew something about that they were from Iran. They hated Islam. They'd come out here to study, particularly the woman hated the way women were treated. And they had some inkling that Jesus was kind of nice, so, but they weren't allowed to look at him in Iran. So, but when they came out here, they did. When they finally just stopped having conversations with us and they did simply Christianity and stuff, and when they came to church, it was really because I didn't think Anna, in fact, that Annandale had gone through a really hard time. There'd been a, there'd been a really savage amount of suffering that um, the ministry had gone through. And it was, it was, I thought it was one of the glummest churches I've been in, understandably. But they said there was so much joy in the building. <laughs> they said there was, there was so much joy in the building. I don't want to say, are you kidding me? Right? You spend your time in funeral homes? This place is not very joyful at all. But they could pick it. So there's this funny thing with Christianity that it says your life is fundamentally serious. But within that you find the heart of joy because the God who is ahead of it and on top of it is so wonderfully loving. That little man, you know, the, the finest man who was ever involved at maybe the second finest man, at, at Barney's Broadway was the guy, Mr Eternity, you know, who wrote Eternity everywhere. He was converted at a 
thing that Hammond, the guy, the, the extraordinary, the, man, the minister at Barney's who made every subsequent minister feel like a complete midget, at which we were. But um, he used to run these men's meetings. Arthur Stace was a hopeless drunk, came from a criminal family, sisters ran brothels, he'd been hurt in the World War I. Uh, he, you know, judges and magistrates had slammed him and he said, look, I can't help it. I, I, can you help me? And they said, no, off to prison with you. Anyway, he meets Christ, right? And in the end feels this calling um, to write eternity everywhere, which he did hundreds and hundreds of thousands of times. Uh, the, the world's greatest graffiti artist. Right? Eternity. I've got a coffee cup with it on. Mightn't be a bad thing to remind you. That's where you're living, friends. This, this one inch of life that you have, whether yours goes for 10 years or 15 years, or for a friend of mine, Jack, for 17 years, or whether or not, like, like Joe Mullins at our church, he's 101. We had our matriarch live till she was 103. You know, you get, that's still nothing, is it? Mary MacDonald had 103 years. She's going to have an eternity. And Jesus is saying, for goodness sake, wake up. Right? You know, this is reality. Live now with your money in a way that makes sense in the terms of eternity right? and, and set this money free. He's not saying this life doesn't matter. The, the, the difficult thing with Christianity is it, it says two things at once and most spiritual traditions say one or the other. So it's not saying a lot of Eastern religions do. Life down here doesn't matter. It never says that. That's why Christians have always been setting up hospitals and schools and all sorts of things. It matters. But it's a question saying this is more important. This is more significant. Right? And Jesus is saying, be shrewd. Live that way with your money. So let me ask you, uh, are you being shrewd with your money? Uh, it may mean that you're being shrewd with your capacity to make money. Some people, not me, some people were well enough trained and smart enough they could have made an utter killing in the professional world. But they choose to go into mission or ministry or something like that. They, do, they, they choose not to maximise the profit they can make from their gifts that God has given them. Or just with your, the money that you've got. We had a guy at the church at, at Barney's who was the first solicitor paid a million dollars a year. Apparently he didn't tell me this. Other friends of his told me. Um, that getting paid a, a salary of a million bucks. This is probably 20 years ago. And uh, he's probably the most generous man that I'm aware of knowing. He paid for at least one staff at, at our church. Uh, that, was his, that was where he started. Um, he was converted into a church which tithed at least. In fact, they didn't even count tithing as giving at that church he went to. That was what you owed. Giving starts after that in, in the way that, that um, he was brought up. But he used to talk about the sheer joy there is in giving money away. And so, well, there's a blessing I've never discovered. When, when, when my mother died and left us some money and it came out of little scoops, um, Alison said to me, we are going to tithe this, aren't we? And I said, externally, I said, yes. Internally, I said, oh, you pain, right? Because <laughs> I needed the money, right? So I could love her well. Right? And of course you do. And it was kind of fun having about 10,000 bucks. And who, who does God want us to give this to, right? And it's kind of, and we, we felt that. And it was, I, I discovered what Mark said, and what Jesus says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. But I mentioned to our church the other day, I've been involved in a number of giving things at churches. At Barney's, we, there was a huge debt when I started, and we had a collection for that. Bust had demolished the debt. Then we burnt the church down, so we had to raise some more money. Um, we go to St. Matt's. They were in debt. I have this, I've got this gift of going to churches that... Uh, 
worse financially organised than I am. And we had to did a demolish the debt part two down there. And now we're building a church hall. You know, I hate buildings. So I think it's why God leads me to churches that we do, because I'm just not interested. I get no satisfaction out of them. And I think they can be a massive distraction. But I, uh, when we launched some of the appeal for this building that I think we should probably build, just hope Jesus doesn't come back in Ari after we've built it. <laughs> but I enjoyed saying to the congregation, to the amount of money we're going to raise, I said, I have not given, I've led four money appeals in churches, I have not given a cent of my money to any of them. <gasps> I don't have any money. All I am is a steward. Now, I think because God knows I'm untrustworthy, as he says in that thing, he doesn't give me much. But God may have given you much. He hasn't given it to you. He's entrusted it to you. And the question for you to work out is, are you a just steward or are you spending vastly more on your own living and your children, etc., and your superannuation, your plans and your travel plans, etc.? You know, I... I want to ask some of the people at our church, because what you do in Canberra, because Canberra's so boring, you retire, you get a massive retirement if you work for the public service. They, they just had, up until recently, they're on this amazing um, bracket that the government's now shut down. But they retire very young, very healthy, with lots of money. But you're in a boring place, so what do you do? Every 12 to 18 months, you go overseas. Oh, you've done South America, so this time, to use Monty Python, you go over the Andes by frog. It's interesting. Even back in the 70s, Monty Python could see the farce of travel. You've done everything, so let's do it by frog this time. That's the, I think that's the joke. But imagine if God was to say to Canberra Christians, and I'm not going to go at any of you here, no more world travel, okay? You've done enough. Right? It doesn't really enrich your lives. It just gives you something to talk about as you plan, a bit of a thrill when you're there, and you can compare pictures when you get back and lead others in the church to be similarly tempted to waste their money and time and here's the problem. Godly Christians who are involved in retirement, quite healthy, are nowhere near as fruitful as they could because they're not there. Three months of the year, they're overseas. Hang the kids they were teaching. They've got more important things to do. And I can't, I'm not their judge, and I really am not. And I don't think it's wrong for Christians to go overseas, and who cares what I think, really? The question is, what does your master think? And I do think a lot of our overseas travel, and I've got no idea about you guys, which is good, so I can... But I tell you, in Canberra, I think we do it because we're bored and because that's what you do. One Christian guy went for an overseas trip with his wife, and I've got nothing against people doing what, you know, all sorts of wealthy things. I've just bought a little house. I mean, it's, what, it's a wealthy little house. So, you know, we're all open to all sorts of hammering from other Christians if we want to be too judgmental. But he, he used this phrase which was really interesting. It, it alerted me to something. He said, I'm practising for my retirement. And I said to him, what did he mean by that? And someone explained it to me. I thought, and that's true. So the question for us, brothers and sisters, is to work out, with all the money God has entrusted to you, either through your own brain and opportunities at work or through partly through inheritance and other things like that, right, are you actually living as a steward and setting as much of it free as possible? John Wesley when he started out as an Anglican minister a million years ago, in his first year, apparently, he earned £30 for the year's work. It, he worked out it cost him £28 to live, so he gave £2 away. Within a few years, he was earning twice as much. He was earning £60. He worked out it still cost him £28 to live, and he gave £32 away. 
Towards the end of his life, he was one of the most highly paid men in England because of the number of books of his sermons and hymns that he and his brothers had written. And he was earning at one stage £1,400. So he gave away £1,372. He was a steward. He worked out it cost him £28 to live, which released all the other money. Now, that's fairly extreme, but it's inspiring, isn't it? He doesn't think, ah, more money so I can get a nicer car next time. There's nothing wrong with a Toyota, right? I've got a million examples here. How much more time have I got? A second? I'll give you... Here's a true story about a bishop doing something good. It happens sometimes. Although he wasn't a bishop when he did this. But um, Stuart Robinson, good bloke. One of the marks of the fact that he's a good bloke, I think, is he became a bishop and then left it and went back into real ministry, which is... Something I think is impressive. He was involved in building a church out of Quakers Hill. I'm talking fast because we're running out of time. Sorry, I hope you can still understand. They were building a church in Quakers Hill. It was a brand new church out of nothing, building a building. They ran out of money to build seats. They built the building, drainage, toilets, no money for seats. And I had the pleasure of speaking out there a few times as an evangelist. So what did Stuart do in the end? He didn't hardly tell anyone. He prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and then he sold his Harley Davidson. Because right? he had a Harley Davidson, which he did honestly use for ministry. I know it's hard to believe, but he did. But he also loved it. He turned his Harley Davidson into scummy little plastic chairs. Right? That's a shrewd man. Right? He had, he had assets. There was a need for the gospel. So people could sit in the chairs and hear the gospel preached. Hard choice. A friend of mine, Jeff Ellerton, probably shouldn't mention his name, he lives up in the country. Um, he was a guy that God used to help me become a Christian, although I was very rude to him because he was a private school boy, so he deserved to have people being rude to him. And he was also um, straight, and I was cool. So I was rude to him. Jeff's father died about a year or so after I became a Christian, and we were fairly good friends then. And his father was quite wealthy, and... Jeff received all the money, which made his mum, because his mum and dad had divorced, and Jeff gave some of the money to his mum. But then he took all the money and went down to CMS bookshop, uh, CMS um, head office above the bookshop it used to be, because Jeff was training to be an engineer. He didn't, you know, he was was going to earn enough money to live. So he took all the money down and got the cheque and slapped it on the desk of the CMS, um, head of the CMS Missionary Society. And the guy, to his enormous credit, said, Jeff, thank you, but I think you're trying to avoid your responsibility. He pushed the cheque back to him and said, how about I get some friends and we set up some trust funds so this money will just keep producing money that CMS can use year after year after year. And they did. Jeffrey is the only person from that church that I know, and I know quite a few, who, you know, even me now, even though I'm an Anglican minister, who's never gone on an overseas holiday. Right? He went on an overseas excursion at Scots with his bagpipes off to Scotland. Isn't it interesting? Here is a guy who's got the, probably the equivalent of millions of dollars. I don't know how annoyed his wife gets. I don't know that, that part, but I can think she may be a bit crapped off. Um, but he just... He, everyone else I know almost lives overseas from that church. You know, every second month they're away. Jeff hasn't been, although as a young man he became... Why? He's being a sensible steward. Do you think that's a tragedy? 
having to stay in Australia, having to go to Noosa for your holidays. Well, what a tragedy. Right? Better beach than you find anywhere in Europe. But anyhow, um, it, that's, a, that's a steward, just being shrewd. Who knows what sort of welcome he's going to get in heaven because the, the money just pours into mission work all over the place. This is the opportunity. I should, I've got all sorts of things I'd like to have. I won't. Revolutionary stories. This is a revolutionary way to think, isn't it? Even for us who are Christians. And I need to be reminded of this all the time. Right? I'm a steward. I'm a steward. I'm a steward. Yes, God gives me a, a large living allowance. Right? But I'm a steward. And I can, I can send this money forward by putting it into key ministries. Right? Australians, I don't know, some of you, I know you haven't lived, you know, from generations of people who lived in Australians. We are a cynical bunch in Australia. And I saw this with some American Christians who'd married Australians. The American Christians heard of requests for money. These were guys up at We War, uh, where there were a bunch of American farmers who'd come across to teach us how to cotton farm. When the, the, and the, these couples, American man, Australian wife, they, a couple of them joked about the fact that when he hears of a gospel opportunity, he'd get the checkbook out. He'd do it in church. And they, they don't have checkbooks now, of course. But she would say, I would say, put it away. And that she said, the Australians, we assume everyone is trying to steal from us. We're cynical. Where the Americans would rather give, even if they lost something, rather than have a real gospel need and opportunity, have the money and not give. What this is calling us to, it's very exciting, really, to live as a steward. Right? I think it's fairly clear. I've gone for too long. Thank you for your patience. Let me pray for us, because I think this is an important adventure that this revolutionary story calls us to. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your son, who is your great and expensive gift to us. Uh, thank you that you have entrusted to us in this country so much wealth, so much opportunity, um, Forgive us, Lord, for times when we have forgotten that we own nothing, really. All that we have has come from you. All of our brilliance and giftedness and hard-working ethic comes ultimately from you. Help us, Lord, to live the remaining few years that we have um, investing money into that which lasts for eternity. Please give us soft hearts. Please transform us from the inside and help us as a community to help each other live as stewards without being judgmental, but encouraging each other in the doing good that will last forever. We pray for this help in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at that, the longest talk, and it probably should have been the shortest of the week. Sorry about that.